0: Thanks for tuning in. Back in 1954, in a sleepy little countryside in Springfield Township in Pennsylvania, Ed Fonder and his wife Alice fell in love with a one-room cabin sitting on 12 acres. For years, he worked as a machinist and saved up to build their dream home. And in 1981, he finally retired and they built that home. Now that they had the time, they took up gardening, and Ed would phone his sister to tell her what was blooming in his garden that day. Eventually, he would have both his hips replaced, and in 1987, Alice developed health issues and invited her daughter Mary to move in. The father and daughter had a contentious relationship. The two had the same personality and temperament and butted heads often. She would describe her father as sometimes caring and considerate, but also opinionated and bad-tempered. In the winter of 1991, both Ed and Alice ended up in the hospital at the same time, and in September, Alice passed away. A Philadelphia Inquirer story reported that Ed's home was his Garden of Eden, and he filled it with wildflowers and statues of cherubs, lions, and birds. In the summer of 1993, his Eden had withered. His wife of 55 years had died, leaving him inconsolable with grief. His health was failing, so much so that his legs could no longer carry him along the deer paths behind his house, and numbness in his hands made it difficult for him to garden. Mary remained in the house to help her father. He liked to stay up late and sleep in, so she adopted her sleep pattern to match his. His limited mobility meant he couldn't walk too far in the house, let alone outside, Every morning, she would be there to help him up the stairs to the kitchen. Mary had never married or had children. She was a heavy-set woman with thick, dark, short hair that framed a face that never seemed to smile. She had her own health issues with diabetes, high blood pressure, and had had a knee replacement surgery. It was August 15, 1993, a scorching hot Sunday, when two of Ed's elderly cousins paid him a visit. They'd only been there about 90 minutes when Mary and Ed got into a big argument. It made everyone feel uncomfortable and they cut their visit short. Mary would later tell the morning call news that they had upset her father with their negative views of the world and their criticism of the way she was taking care of him and that it was unforgivable and it blew our family apart. Then, for the next two weeks, he threw angry looks her way spit out spiteful comments, and then gave her the silent treatment. She claimed that after their visit, he changed his habits and instead of sleeping in, he began getting up early and wandering away from the house without his cane, and that on one occasion she found him a thousand feet from the house. A neighbor would later tell a different view of a man who couldn't walk away because he physically couldn't. Two weeks later, on a Thursday, Mary got up early around 7 a.m. to set the table for breakfast so it would be ready for her father when he got up. Then she returned to bed and fell back asleep. Around 11 a.m., she awoke and heard his steps in the hallway. He went to the kitchen, opened and closed the fridge, then she heard the front door close. She assumed he was going to pick up the newspaper at the end of the driveway, but when she got up, he wasn't in the living room, the kitchen, the bedroom or anywhere in the house she looked around from outside no ed she picked up the phone and called the police they arrived with the help of volunteer firefighters and searched the property they brought in bloodhounds who traced it sent up the driveway and down the road a short distance then it ended they contacted his son edison in new jersey in case he would found his way there but no he hadn't his son distributed posters with his photo and his doctor was concerned and estimated he could only go a week or so without medication. Ed was 80 years old. His disappearance was featured on a local Crime Stoppers episode, and a few reported sightings came in, but none of the leads led to Ed. His son thought perhaps his father could not face the anniversary of his mother's death. Over several months, police searched the house and the 12 acres numerous times, In November, police did an aerial search of Ed's property and they asked Mary to take a lie detector test. Now you think she would have wanted to help police, a standard procedure to rule out the closest people to a potential crime. But Mary was not happy. After the lie detector test, she banned police from her home and hired a lawyer. Then in May 1994, Ed's wallet mysteriously turned up in a city mailbox in Allentown over an hour away from his home. It was discovered by a postal worker and contained his driver's license and credit cards. The post office sent a letter to the address in the wallet, and when Mary received it, she contacted police who sent the wallet to the crime lab. On the one-year anniversary of Ed's disappearance, Mary placed a classified ad in the local newspaper, asking him to come home. She also bought a gun. She felt police were unrelenting and the press portrayed her in a negative light and she was contemplating suicide. Mary got a job working at Denny's for a while, but it didn't work out too well and when she got fired, she pulled out that gun she'd bought and threatened a co-worker. A complaint was filed, but it doesn't appear she faced any charges from that incident. In September, it had been 13 months since Ed disappeared and police hadn't forgotten or given up. They issued a Missing Persons Flyer that was sent to police agencies across the U.S. Meanwhile, Mary joined the Trinity Evangelical Lutheran Church in Springfield Township and over the years immersed herself in their activities. She donated money to the church and one of her paintings hung on their walls. Although in her mid-fifties she was an odd duck of sorts, she didn't really fit in. But that wouldn't stop her from trying. She often offered unsolicited advice and while she thought it was helpful, it struck others as intrusive. She had a crush on her pastor, Reverend Greg Shreves. She called him often, sometimes 15 times a week. She baked him pies and let herself into his home and left it in his refrigerator. It creeped him out, and he threw him out and did his best to distance himself and discourage her. He stopped taking her calls, but then she'd leave long rambling messages that didn't make a lot of sense. Then, in 2006, Mary took her infatuation a little too far. When she applied, there was something between them. The statement made the reverend extremely uncomfortable, and he thought it was inappropriate, so he suggested she find another church to worship in. But she didn't. Then a new member joined the church. The congregation welcomed Rhonda Smith with open arms. On Sunday, January 13, 2008, she shared her story with them. As she stood before them in the sanctuary, she told of how in her early 20s she'd been working towards a teaching degree when she suffered a breakdown and was hospitalized. She was then diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Now, at 42, she was grateful she'd found new friends and a spiritual home. Rhonda took medication, but her symptoms often made it difficult for her to hold down a job but that didn't stop her from being upbeat and hopeful. She never married or had children and lived on her own in an apartment. She remained close with the family and wrote letters to her parents and sent them greeting cards for every occasion and holiday. Her older brother was serving in the military in Afghanistan and at church she'd found a new friend and fellow member Judy Zellner. The two women bonded and she knew she could reach out and talk to Judy anytime, even if it was three in the morning. And they talked often, almost daily. Judy enjoyed Rhonda's sense of humor and her strength. Outwardly, Mary pretended to like Rhonda. They both sang in the choir and attended church functions together, but inside, she was seething. Rhonda quickly fit in with everyone and was well liked, but as hard as she tried, Mary just didn't fit in. She'd heard a party was being planned for Rhonda's birthday, but she hadn't been invited. Interesting thing is no one knows where she got that idea there wasn't a birthday party Mary discovered that Rhonda had been asked to serve as receptionist at the church while the reverend was attending a three-day retreat in a nearby town on January 21st it was Rhonda's first day working at the church and when Mary called she answered the phone during their conversation Mary was surprised to find out that not only was she being paid to volunteer but that the church had provided her with financial help. Mary had never been offered help. Not in the 14 years she belonged to the church. I mean, not that she needed it, but that wasn't the point. Mary's jealousy turned to anger, and that anger turned deadly. On the morning of January 23rd, Mary looked at the date on the calendar she kept in her purse. In it, she had written, Rhonda murdered and hairdresser. Then she picked up the phone and called the church. Rhonda was working alone and answered the phone. Mary hung up. She slid behind the wheel in her car and drove to the church. At 10.55 a.m., she slipped inside without anyone seeing her. Standing three feet from Rhonda, she raised the gun. Rhonda looked just in time to see the gun and raised her right hand to defend herself. The first shot grazed her forehead. The second shot penetrated her skull and landed in her brain. Rhonda fell to the floor. Mary calmly put the gun away and strolled out of the church and drove eight miles to her hairdresser. It was in a strip mall and she pulled into the handicap parking. She didn't have an appointment, so when she entered, she wrote her name on the waiting list. It was 11.22 a.m., Mary often wore a wig, and she took it off for her shampoo and set, but after her appointment, she forgot to take it with her. Rhonda was not dead. She laid there alone and slowly dying until her friend Judy came in around 1245 to clean the church and spotted her crumpled body on the floor. Rhonda had massive head injuries, but she was still breathing. She was rushed to St. Luke's Hospital, but seven hours after being shot twice, Rhonda died from her injuries. Police would only publicly say that Rhonda's death was suspicious, and they hadn't yet determined if it had been suicide or a murder. But secretly, police suspected Mary. They spoke to her hairdresser and discovered the wig she left behind and seized it for evidence, along with the sign-in sheet. They instructed the employees at the salon, not to mention it the next time Mary came in. And three weeks later, when she showed up at the salon, she had another wig with her and didn't ask about the one she'd forgotten. But she did ask about the sign-in sheet. She wondered, do they get destroyed? Luckily, the hairdresser managed to avoid giving her an answer and changed the subject. Mary sent Rhonda's parents a sympathy card. Court records indicate that she told them that she wished it was her, not Rhonda, who died, and that should have been me in the ground instead of Rhonda. Her parents had started attending the church their daughter loved, and at church meals she sat beside them. And one day after the service, she grabbed Rhonda's father's hand, looked him in the eye, and said, I still see her face in front of me. Rhonda's parents knew their daughter's faith would not allow her to commit suicide but had no idea why someone would shoot her. And members of the church strongly felt she had been murdered. The morning call reported that police brought Mary in for questioning. The state police interviewed her for three hours. She was quite chatty and told them about her failing health, her bouts with depression, and her financial struggles. But when it came time to talking about Reverend Shreves, she wasn't shy. She didn't hide her feelings from him, calling them, sexual kind of feelings and warm feelings about the man. She also said he was popular with the ladies. Then she told police about a mysterious man who stopped by the church days before Rhonda's murder and that she thought her murder was an accident and insisted she wasn't a murderer. Mary's interview was 98 pages long. Police often say when someone talks too much, it makes them suspicious. In early March, police finally shared with Mary that they suspected her, but it didn't stop her from trying to insert herself into the lives of Rhonda's parents. On March 12th, she delivered an apple pie to their home, and when Rhonda's mother noticed her old and worn-out shoes, she gave her two pairs of Rhondas. On Wednesday, March 26, police seized Mary's car and had her Ford Escort towed. Forensic testing found gunshot residue on the armrest on the driver's door, the driver's seat, and on the turn signal knob. Two days later, Mary borrowed her brother Ed's Honda Civic and drove it 33 miles before returning it. A week later, when Ed got into his car, the sun was shining and he noticed it bouncing off a piece of metal. It appeared to be a bullet fragment. March 29th was a Saturday and Doug Sealsper and his nine-year-old son Garrett were fishing on the shores of Lake Noxamixon Mixon when his son happened to look down and noticed something had washed up on the shore. He looked down and saw a 38 caliber handgun. It appeared to be in perfect condition, not even a little rust from being in the water. His father picked it up and noticed it still had two live rounds and three spent shells. He emptied the bullets into the water and took out the casings and went home. Doug then called the police, and when they went to where the gun had been found, in the lake, they discovered a box of matching bullets from 1992. The next day, forensic testing revealed that the bullet that killed Rhonda came from that gun in the lake. Police obtained records that the murder weapon was purchased by Mary and was also registered to her. She told police she had bought the gun because she planned on committing suicide and that she only fired it once and was shocked how loud it was. Years ago, on the day she planned to shoot herself, two missionaries stopped by and visited with her. And after they left, she changed her mind. And the next day, she drove to a bridge near Noxomixen State Park and threw the gun off a bridge. Police finally had the evidence they needed and on April 1st, they arrested Mary. Just hours earlier, she sat with church members at a monthly gathering at the church. They had no idea what was about to happen. Court records indicate that when Mary was brought to the police station to be fingerprinted, she was quite chatty again. She told an officer that, I feel horrible somebody used my gun. It don't look good for me. She went on to say that she'd thrown the gun away 14 years ago and claimed, I would not hurt that woman. I would not kill that Rhonda. Mary was 65 years old and charged with first degree murder and possession of a weapon. She pled not guilty. After her arrest, police publicly announced that Rhonda's death was now a murder. That entry Mary made in her calendar stating it was a murder before it had officially been declared a murder would come back to haunt her at her trial. Meanwhile, police had quietly resumed the case on her father Ed's disappearance. The district attorney's office called the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation to inquire about Ed's pension. It turns out that Mary never notified them that her father had disappeared and kept cashing his checks over the last 15 years to the tune of almost $64,000. Over the years, she had power of attorney and contacted the pension company to change his bank account number, but failed to mention he'd been missing for years. And now, the pension company wanted their money back. They stopped making payments in June, and a month later filed a lawsuit against her. Mary had spent about half the money and had just under $32,000 left in a joint bank account, A federal judge froze that account, and a few weeks later, the pension company agreed to hold off on their lawsuit until after Mary's murder trial. By mid-October, a jury of four women and eight men were selected. In First Assistant District Attorney David Zelison's opening argument, he stated that on January 13th, Rhonda had been courageous by sharing her bipolar disorder with the congregation. But what she didn't know... What her family didn't know, and what no one knew, was that the woman seated over there, and he pointed right at Mary, was seated in the congregation when a fuse was lit that day. The following day, it was the defense lawyer's turn to speak. The Philadelphia Inquirer reported that he said Mary was different. She chatters nonstop. Disjointed thoughts randomly roll off her tongue. She's like the aunt. You don't want to sit next to at Thanksgiving but that she was wrongfully accused of a crime she didn't commit. And he pointed out that police hadn't looked at all the potential suspects because Rhonda had recently dated a married man. He went on to poke holes in their timeline, saying she couldn't possibly have killed Rhonda at 10.55 and made it to her hair appointment by 11.22 because she drove like molasses. He said Mary is one of those people you hate to drive behind. Now, remember that piece of metal her brother found in his car after Mary borrowed it? Forensic testing confirmed it was a bullet fragment, and ballistic tests matched it to Mary's gun. Mary's defense lawyer tried to discredit the investigation, claiming that the crime scene wasn't preserved and that the gun hadn't been tested for fingerprints, and that other people knew she had thrown the gun into the lake. But interestingly, he didn't call any of those witnesses to the stand. On Thursday, October 30th, as ghosts and goblins were preparing for Halloween, and after nine long days of testimony, the jury was in deliberations. After six hours, they announced they had found Mary guilty of first-degree murder. At age 66, she became the oldest woman convicted of murder in the county. In early December, she was sentenced to life in prison. In addition to two and a half to five years for possession of a weapon, She is not eligible for parole. In the spring of 2009, the pension company reached a settlement with Mary for the ill-gotten pension funds. The money in the bank account that had been frozen would be returned to them. Mary then hired a new lawyer to file an appeal for her murder conviction, but a year later changed her mind and withdrew it. In May 2018, Ed had been missing for 25 years. A neighbor who just bought Ed and Alice's home in 12 Acres demolished the house and allowed police to search the rubble on the land. He never believed Ed had just walked away. Using ground-penetrating radar, police did not find any signs of Ed. And remember Ed's two hit replacements? Police made plans to go back in a couple weeks and search with metal detectors. But they didn't get the chance. Mary died of a heart attack in prison. She was 75. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Christy Marac. On the Sunday before Christmas, the elementary school teacher wrapped 40 presents for her students. The next morning, she was brutally murdered. For 26 years, her killer roamed near. Then he was caught. If you are dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at Murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or Murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects and Vaseline studios and quick sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.